0: You're listening to the Centre Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message recorded live from our Brighton campus. Over the next few weeks, as you might have gathered from the video, uh, we're we'll look We're starting a new series, and we're. It's called Blessed. And We're looking at um, these these uh, words that are usually called the Beatitudes. These. These terms in um, the book of Matthew, chapter 5. And they're basically like, they're like the opening statements of this larger narrative, this larger story called the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, I guess they probably called it that because Jesus probably sold it on a sermon, you know. Um, and I want, I want us to imagine this sermon of Jesus as kind of like the bedrock of his teaching. It's the stuff that was remembered and written down. It's his most famous teaching. So, I think there are probably two things that you might expect to find in something that's like um, the, the main, sort of, most famous teaching of someone like Jesus. First, you probably expect he preached these ideas in all sorts of different places, all sorts of different times over, over his life. You know, there's a, there's a related sermon that's recorded in the book of Luke, and a lot of these similar ideas are, are in there. And also, secondly, you'd expect that having sort of honed his technique, having sort of worked on his style and, and pulled out the, his best sermon, Jesus would start it with something that really set the stage for everything else that he was going to say. So, these, ter- these beatitudes, the stuff that was on the video before, these, these sort of beginning statements, these one-liners, I think are kind of like Jesus' sales pitch. Like his shorthand for his manifesto. The, the things that people could tweet, even if they didn't quite understand what they meant. Or also if Twitter wasn't around at the time. Never know. So, that's why... Basically, we're going to we're going to look in a bit more depth at those statements. We're going to take one each week. We're going to be um, sort of as different people get up and preach. That's what we're going to be talking about. So you will know which one's coming next if you just like read Matthew chapter five. It's pretty cool like that. Um, but they they frame Jesus's sort of most profound teaching, and I think in that sense they're probably kind of profound for us too. If you allow me to say that in the Western church, we're very good at spiritualizing things. We're very good at compartmentalizing ourselves, putting ourselves in all these different compartments of things that matter for this and things that matter for that. We have this concept of ourselves as mind, body and soul, which really comes more from from Greek philosophy than it comes from um, the biblical text. And we try and separate ourselves into these various little compartments. So, we study and inform ourselves to grow our mind. We um, exercise and eat well to look after our body or not, depending on our disposition. Um, and we go to church to care for our souls. But I'm not sure that that's what the Christian life is all about. I think it's more than a call to a kind of sort of compartmentalized version of ourselves, I think it's more holistic than that. You see, for many Christians, it probably doesn't really matter that much if Jesus taught anything or not. Because for for people who think in this sort of compartmentalised way, we think, well, you know, Jesus died for me, he's my personal saviour, he took care of my personal sin, uh, that's enough. You know. It, it matters that Jesus was born of a virgin, died on a cross and it doesn't, what he did in between is nice, good moral teaching but it doesn't really affect my where my soul's going. But I think that that's not the whole story. I think the Gospels spend a lot of time giving us examples of the kind of things Jesus said and did. The kind of person he was. The people he ate with, the people he loved, the people he had compassion on. Um, and it's almost as if his life was a vision of how we should live and I think that's that's more what it's about see if that's the case a teaching which says that, that we ought to change the way we, that we live is not something that impacts us just on a spiritual level or soothes our soul or some sort of other ethereal, disconnected sort of sense of something that's out there. It's holistic, it's transforming, it's it's a life-giving story that ought to change us, ought to change the way that we live. See, we can trust the teaching of Jesus, we can trust the things that he said, because he lived them out. And this teaching is something that's supposed to form us supposed to form us into the likeness of Jesus. It's not primarily about securing our soul. In fact, I think if we take a proper look at the sort of biblical understanding of um, the resurrection, we don't see Jesus' soul being restored, being resurrected. We see a whole person being restored. That is ultimately the Christian hope. Not that our souls is going to go off somewhere... And, and there's a separation it's, it's resurrection and restoration so this concept of our soul being secure and our future hope is, is kind of a bit skewed, a bit off and I think that we need to realign ourselves with a, with a more holistic understanding of salvation and maybe that requires us to be intimately formed by the life of Jesus and his teachings you know I think that's what, what the Apostle Paul's trying to explain in a lot of his letters when he talks about this concept of being in Christ and it's not simply about Jesus' death um, offering and this free gift of forgiveness of sin um, on the back of that it's, it's his resurrection speaks to the truthful reality of who he is and how we can live as people who are formed by him so with all that in mind, Jesus' sales pitch, he's opening one-liners, were all about how to be blessed. There's um, a theologian and author called Marcus Borg, who in my opinion explains this concept really well, and he uses the, the following terminology. He, he speaks of a world of conventional wisdom and Jesus being a teacher of subversive wisdom. So Jesus basically turning things on its head. See, these two things are really helpful when we look at the teaching of Jesus. Because oftentimes, Jesus takes what's been said, he takes what's commonly thought, the the conventional sort of wisdom, and he turns it on his head, and he says, God's justice looks a bit different than the way that you thought it looked. So right at the beginning of this sermon, in Matthew 5, 3, verse 3, we have this statement that hopefully I think will come on the screen. The blessed are blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus lived in this world of convention, this world of this is the way that we've always done it, this is the way that we do things. He lived in a world where you reap what you sow. Yet he said that the birds don't reap nor sow, and God looks after them anyway. He lived in a world where you get what you deserve yet the message of grace is that we don't deserve it. He lived in a world where the righteous will prosper yet this torturous regime of the Roman Empire was an everyday reality for God's people. How can the righteous be blessed in a regime where evil seems to be thing that's prospering and the thing that's flourishing. <laughs> Jesus, believed, Jesus lived in a world where being blessed couldn't mean what he said, it, what people said it meant. And I think we live in a similar world today, where being blessed is not necessarily what we think it means. We struggle with that tension. Jesus' response to the world that he lived in was to say, the kingdom of God is upside down. He taught that the first will be last. He washed the feet of his disciples. He hung around with the undesirables. And he was like called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He suffered this most dishonorable death. And through that death was somehow, which can only work in the upside down kingdom of God, through that death... He was exalted to the highest place. He was lifted up from this place of utter dishonour when you talk of like the world, the system of the world. He was lifted up to this place of the highest honour. That can only happen in, in God's kingdom when God's justice is, is at hand. See, it speaks to a logic which is upside down. Kingdom of God is not that God helps those that help themselves the kingdom of God is that God restores the broken that that God gives hope to the hopeless, sight to the blind and sets the captives free so it's no wonder then for me that Jesus' manifesto speaks against this conventional wisdom and declares that to be blessed means something other than what we've made it in the, I don't know if anyone's seen Princess Bride, it's a pretty cool film in the words of Inijo Montoya, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. So what does it mean to be blessed? Though I was looking I was looking around the internet at like all sorts of different people who were tweeting about being blessed and using the hashtag blessed and all this sort of stuff. I was looking for examples of people using Using the word. Some some were small, some were huge. It took took all sorts of forms. There were people like um, someone downloaded a new song and they tweeted the guy who had written this song and said that they were so blessed that they'd managed to download this song. Not sure how that works. And it, but some, some are quite like profound, like someone surviving cancer or you know surviving like a plane crash or something like that. We we tend to be happy. And fulfilled when something good happens to us. It's pretty natural. Um, we, and also when we're climbing this sort of ladder of success, we're getting up to the next level, we're, when we're like upwardly mobile. And we want to share that and we're like, oh, this re- really cool thing happened to me and that's really good. But is that what God's all about? Like giving us that shiny new car or that thing that we really want or... You know that that sort of all those little bits and pieces that we want in that house that we're really looking for is is that what God's blessings are? I came across this story and I want to share it with you, so I'm going to read it um, from a Christian devotional book. And it says this: The road outside our church has space for less than a dozen cars by 10 a.m. on a Sabbath morning. All the parking on the nearby streets is usually gone. After that, unless you want a £60 fine, using the car park several streets away is your only option. It was after 10am by the time I left the house. I'd been asked to take part in the programme and was running behind schedule. So I decided to head straight for the car park. Even as I made that decision, I heard a voice saying to me, "That's I'm not adding those They're actually in the text, because <laughs> that would sound really awkward if I was that. that. Yeah. I heard a voice say to me, I have a space outside the church for you. During the next few minutes, I debated whether or not God would really give me a parking space. My, my prayer every morning that week had been, Oh Lord, bless me indeed. And he had blessed me every single day, spectacularly and unexpectedly. Yet the nearer I got to the church, the less confident... Um, I, I became that this blessing would be part of the package. As I turned the corner, I blurted out, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm not making this up, this actually exists. As I drew alongside the church, a row of cars stretched from one side of the building to the next, but right there, just before the start of the no parking zone was one empty space. I couldn't believe it. In fact, I drove straight past it, telling myself that it had been left empty for the pastor. My space would be in the next street. In the next street, I tried to park in a gap between two cars, but I couldn't fit. I expected two more streets. The spaces in them were so far away from the church that I decided that I might as well go back to the car park. As I doubled back past the church, my eyes were drawn to that one empty space right outside. Suddenly, it hit me. That was my parking space. That was the space God had promised me. Pretty profound stuff, isn't it? You know, the thing is, I I think speaking to about at least three people tonight... the three of us who I've spoken to are not blessed at all (laughs) Because, because because there was such bad parking that meant that two spaces were taken by one car so either that one person was incredibly blessed or God hates all of us I mean, I don't really know how it works I mean is that really it? Is that the extent of God's blessing? That he saves a car parking space for some do we serve a God that cares more about someone finding a parking space than someone who's suffering some sort of terrible illness or loss or abuse or something that really, really cuts to the core of someone, who someone is? Is God really concerned more about parking? I think we need a new normal when we talk about being blessed. If that's the best we can come up with, It's no wonder that people don't take us seriously when we talk about the blessings of God. Inasmuch as, like, I want to be really happy that this woman found her car parking space. And that probably meant loads to her at the time. There are bigger problems in the world that I think God wants to be involved in, and God is involved in. Doesn't God care more about those things? Or is he too busy sorting out parking spaces for a lady who wants to help at the church? I suppose what I'm asking is, how do we define God? Because out of that definition comes an understanding of how he blesses us. There's a video that that went viral on the internet um, a few weeks ago, and I I don't know if some of you probably saw it, some of you probably didn't. Um, But Stephen Fry was interviewed on a TV show, and he was asked, Stephen Fry's an atheist, in case you don't know, Um, he was asked, um, if it was all real and all true and he came face to face to God, with God, what would he say? And he got quite angry and he, he began to talk about things like um, bone cancer in children and these little African worms that bore into the eyes of, of people and make them blind by eating from the inside out. And he said if that God existed, the last thing he would want to do was worship him. And I was quite taken aback by this because I was like, well, how, how do I respond to that? Like, what is, as, as a Christian, like, how do I respond to that story that this guy's painting? Because any sort of sane, sensible human being can recognize that the world that we live in is not perfect. It's not right. It's not sorted out. It's not how it was meant to be. And how can it be fair that God rewards some with these tiny little blessings, like parking spaces, yet seemingly punishes others with terrible diseases and, and abuse and all sorts of stuff. And then I was struck by, when I was thinking about this, by the fact that this world, though it was declared good in the beginning by God, is fundamentally broken, it's messed up, it's not the way it's supposed to be. You see, what Stephen Fry did in, in that... Um, video in that response. created a caricature of God. Uh, and he, he created a caricature of a God that he didn't believe in. And he proceeded to point out all, all the moral failings of this God, all the issues of this God. The problem with that is that it, it supposes, it presupposes a God who's done nothing in order to try and rectify the broken state of this world. See, our world is broken, but the promise of God is restoration, that he'll wipe away every tear, that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, that the broken will be restored. And how do we know this to be true? Well, we know it to be true through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who didn't just die to set us free from this personal guilt, this sin problem in our own lives when we compartmentalize he died, he died to fundamentally change the trajectory of the universe, the way in which the universe was going. He died to shift that. His death set in motion a new kingdom, a new rule, a new reign, a kingdom in which God's justice reigns supreme. This is the kingdom that, that we've come to bear witness to as Christians. We've borne witness it, to it through Christ's death and resurrection. And we've borne witness to it Ourselves, because that same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. See, for now we live in this tension that we can't see that final restoration. And we live in this tension where the kingdom's been inaugurated, but we're not fully there yet. It's not been fully realized. We can see that it won't always be this way, that there's a future which is which not yet been realized and the, the restoration is taking place and ultimately will take place. But even in our own lives, we can bear witness. I mean, I can talk for me and hopefully you can talk for yourselves, but we can bear witness to the fact that the restoration is taking place. I know that to be true in my own life. And for, for my part, I can't recognize the God of Stephen Fry's anger the God who stands on the sidelines and demands worship without ever doing anything to try and fix a situation, without ever offering care or compassion. See, God sits with us. He suffers with us. He cares for us. He has compassion for us. He sent his Son to suffer for us and with us. God's a God who's intimately involved in every element of our world. His spirit is at work in us even now. His love abounds. His heart breaks for the profound issues in the world, and he calls us into action to help the suffering of his people. But ultimately, his justice reigns. It's not a case of God creating and then just leaving. See, God in Jesus stepped into our world and created a way where there was no way. And He's recreating and He's restoring all the time. He's always been in the business of creation. Let's not forget that. You see, for me, that's the God of the Bible. That's the God I can believe in and that I recognize. So then, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Why is that a desirable attribute? Well, when we talk about people who are poor in spirit, we're, what we're not doing is spiritualizing um, the problem. We're not spiritualizing poverty or anything like that. We're not saying that this condition is like just an inner thing. Like there's, like I've heard it said that there's a hole in our hearts that only Jesus can fill, and you know, for some people in certain times, that's a really helpful phrase. But remember that. The ancient sort of Hebrew notion of, of humanity was much more holistic than the one that we've inherited from Greek philosophy. And that to be in Christ requires the death of us and a new life which is lived through Christ. We're not being disinterested in financial poverty either. No, what we're saying is that the poor in spirit are those who've become aware of that the human condition has a requirement for God. Not just a part of me, but the whole me. They're those who have such insight into the human condition that that they groan at their own unworthiness. Like, I can't do it. One one writer suggests that Jesus is speaking to those for whom material poverty has broken their spirit. Which is quite a cool thought, and I suppose for a lot of people that's true. But I would take it even further and suggest that whilst we being intimately aware of this problem of poverty, the poor in spirit are the, are the ones who can hold their hands up and say, I've got a problem that I can't fix on my own. They examine themselves in, in humility and they place their trust into God. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like a weird thing to call some, someone who's, who's thinking along those lines, blessed. Like, How does, how does that work? But well, this is Jesus' point. You see, you won't, you won't see, um, I was talking about this stuff on social media and Twitter and, and all that sort of stuff. You won't see these sorts of tweets that, I'm a broken man, and I can't do this on my own. Hashtag blessed. Or, I need help just getting through the day. Hashtag, poor in spirit. Or feeling lost and and alone. I wonder if God is even listening. Hashtag, blessed. See, that sounds so weird to us. But that's what what Jesus is talking about. He says these people are blessed. They don't sound like statements of blessing. They sound like statements of, of woe. But Jesus said, you know what? The reason that you're blessed is because in the kingdom of God, these things are upside down. And you know why the poor in spirit are blessed? It's because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of God. Simply put, God is in a good mood. He's in a good mood with these people. God reaches into your life when you just can't hack it anymore. And he gives you the most comforting, the most compassionate, the most motherly loving hug imaginable and says, It's okay. He walks with you. He he reminds you that his verdict for you is justice and love and grace. He holds you close in the tough times. See, being blessed is not about having this perfect life. There are things in our lives that, in conventional terms, look like actual curses rather than blessings. But the God who created the universe and his son Jesus, they both... Declare that when you recognize that you just can't do it anymore, that's when you're blessed. Because when you're in that place, God accepts you in as a son or daughter who's entitled to inherit this whole perfect, just rule and reign of God. You're accepted as part of His kingdom. In Revelation 3 verse 20 Jesus says I stand at the door and knock If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with that person And they with me In other words Eating a meal with the king of this kingdom Not as a servant Not as a slave As a friend And as a brother or a sister That's the thing A meal with the king is something that's offered to the poor in spirit. The ones who've examined themselves and found that they're left wanting. It's a humbling place to be in. But it's a place where God can truly transform your life. It's a place that enables us to look back and say, you know what, that's the time when I knew what it was like to be blessed. So, I want us to move into a time of response, and that response is to share a meal together, a communion meal that's just by the side of me there. See, it's a meal which calls for us to examine ourselves, and to find that, that that we're left wanting. In this time of response, be aware that Jesus is saying to you, let's share a meal together, because I love you. And we can get through this together as as brothers or sisters. Let this be a time of healing. Let this be a time of restoration and of reflection. And remember that those who are poor in spirit are, are truly blessed because the God of the universe is without a shadow of a doubt in a good mood.